Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Before I begin the interview today, I just want to give you a little spoiler alert on Dr. Alexander's beautiful story when he talks about the beautiful girl he meets on the butterfly wing. He uh, does not recognize her in the beginning. However, um, Dr. Alexander was adopted and he found out later in life that his biological birth parents actually ended up marrying and having three children. Therefore, he had three siblings that he never knew about. And one of those siblings, he found out his sister had passed when she was young. When Dr. Alexander finally saw a picture of her, he recognized her as that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing. If Dr. Alexander had any doubts, this solidified his belief. And here we go. Today, I am just over the top thrilled to have Dr. Eben Alexander on the show. After decades as a physician and teacher at Harvard Medical School and elsewhere, renowned academic neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander thought he knew how the brain, mind, and consciousness worked. A transcendental near-death experience during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection changed all of that completely. Memories of his life had been completely deleted, yet he awoke with memories of a fantastic odyssey deep into another realm, more real than this earthly one. He is the author of New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and most recently, Living in a Mindful Universe, with Karen Newell. Welcome to the program, Dr. Alexander. Marla, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So why don't we just start at the very beginning? Um, Just tell us a little bit about your childhood and what led up to this this change in your your life. Okay. Well, it... uh... Uh, I grew up in North Carolina. My father was a globally renowned neurosurgeon, which had a lot to do with kind of the rest of my life because uh, uh, he was uh, this beautiful mentor to me and role model, and he was just such a wonderful person. And I, uh, as a child, I just admired him so much and wanted to follow in his footsteps. Now, uh, he had um, grown up with a surgical father in Eastern Tennessee who took him to church every Sunday. And my father, uh, you know, a child of the Depression and a combat surgeon, Second World War, and all those things, uh, grew up with a very strong uh, faith in God uh, and in power of prayer. And this never conflicted with his notions of science. And he was scientifically very educated. 
Um, and so anyway, but that was my upbringing. I wanted to, uh, through much of my life, uh, wanted to honor what I'd learned in that Methodist church growing up. But uh, I also knew from a very early age that science is the pathway to truth. So I was never one to just take, you know, religious writings and scripture at their face value as much as I wanted to believe a lot of that uh, about prayer and God and afterlife. But uh, through many decades as a neurosurgeon, I spent 15 years teaching at Harvard Medical School, thought I had some idea of brain, mind, consciousness, how all that fit together. Um, and uh, I must say, I spent the last eight years of my life before my coma, beginning in 2000, uh, in kind of a dark night of the soul. Uh, and that all had to do with the fact that I'd been adopted. Uh, and I'd, I was very accustomed to that arrangement. You know, I looked for my birth mother, just like many adoptees when I was younger. But she was nowhere to be found. The children's home kept telling me, she's not looking for you, so you can just forget about her. So I did, uh, you know, from my early 20s, really, until um, uh, many years later, uh, in the year 2000, when my older son, Evan IV, was doing a school project in family genealogy. And he said, but Dad, we need to know more about your birth family. And that's when I wrote another letter to the children's home, expecting to get the same answer I'd always gotten before, and I got a very different answer. And of course, I talk about that in the book, Proof of Heaven, uh, because that kind of sets the stage for a lot of what happened to me in, the, in that decade before coma. Uh, but that dark night of the soul, I stopped taking my sons to church. I stopped saying prayers with them at night. I stopped believing in a loving personal God or in any power of prayer. And that, that was all because of a perceived rejection from my birth mother that came to me in February 2000. And in looking for the answers that Evan sought for his school project and expecting to just find the same old thing, which was no answer, I found big answers, i.e. the social worker told me in a two-minute phone call that my birth parents had gotten married. I cannot tell you what a shock that was. I'd never in my life uh, thought that was even remotely possible. And not only that, I found that, that they had three children. So I had, both my parents got married, had three kids. I had a full biological family out there that I'd never met. Uh, and yet, to cap it all off, I was also told by the social worker in that phone call that my youngest sister had passed over two years earlier. And so they were still grieving her loss. And it was not a good time to come back in, into their lives. So that was kind of the backdrop. That's where my dark night of the soul came from. And those eight years of agnosticism before my coma, I think we're very important because I think a true open-minded skepticism is absolutely essential. Now, I'm not talking about some of the writers and journalists out there who claim to be skeptics and say, you know, near-death experiences are nonsense because they violate principles of science. I'm not talking about those people because they're what I call pseudo-skeptics. They don't even care about the data. They've already made up their mind, uh, you know, that none of this can be true. And, mm -hmm. and so... You know, they're the furthest thing from a real skeptic. Uh, but real skeptics uh, and real skepticism is a, is a very valuable commodity. In fact, I was my own worst skeptic uh, for months in trying to put all this together and assemble the pieces and make sense of it. Uh, and yet at the end of the day, I see that skepticism is very, very valuable. And that's why I often say that even the naysayers out there are important in this awakening of consciousness. Uh, because, you know, we've all got to buy into this and believe it when we are finally walking on that pathway of realizing what's going on. 
Uh, and that only happens if we've been, you know, discerning in our uh, information gathering, in our, in our hypotheses and all that. So anyway, Absolutely. that's kind of where I started all this. But my coma journey showed me very clearly uh, that the brain is not the producer of consciousness at all. Uh, and so when I came back to this world, uh, you know, and all of my prior scientific knowledge was initially deleted. In fact, all my personal knowledge of my life was deleted. Can you, um, can you go back and talk about the morning of when you were sick and what you had and, and just um, walk us through that briefly because it's such an amazing story. Right. And, and by the way, this, this has all been recently covered in a medical case report on my medical records. It came out in September of 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. Uh, and that case report makes a giant difference because they go oh, a lot yeah. further than I did. It was written by uh, three physicians who were not involved in my care, but w were absolutely shocked by my inexplicable, miraculous recovery. And that's why they wrote that case report. And people can access the case report on my uh, on ebonalexander.com and the blog postings for September 2018. They can get right to the case report itself. But anyway, getting back to your question. Uh, so how it all started, uh, November 10th, 2008, when I woke up with severe back pain, soon realized I had a horrific headache. And then within three hours of symptom onset, I was having grand mal seizures and was deep in so coma, gone from this world. And I was gone from the world for seven days. I was taken into the emergency room, seizing, comatose, uh, you know, flailing about with these seizures. Um, and uh, luckily, Dr. Laura Potter, who, who knew me well, but did not recognize me at the time because I was in such extremis. I was so ill. All she saw was 54-year-old white male trying to die on her watch. Um, and uh, she was the one who did the lumbar puncture. Out came thick white pus under pressure into the needle once they put it in my back. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just showed the horrific nature of the infection. Uh, they soon found out it was a gram-negative bacterial infection, and she knew by going into coma that quickly with that diagnosis, I probably had about a 10% chance of survival. And that was the rosy prognosis early in the week. They put me on three powerful intravenous antibiotics on a, a ventilator, a, a, you know, a, a blower uh, up on the medical ICU. Um, and um, that's where I languished for the next seven days. By the end of seven days, it was a Sunday morning, uh, and they held a family conference where they basically said I'd gone from 10% chance of survival down to 2%. And unfortunately, if I was in that 2% survivor category, that would not be associated with any real recovery. And that's why they recommended I simply, uh, they, they stop the antibiotics and let nature take its course. And that's what they did. And that's when I came back to this world a few hours later, but important to point out, um, my brain was absolutely savaged by this experience. When I right. woke up on that ICU bed, all I knew was the memories of my journey, that incredible spiritual journey that I report proof of heaven. Because a cardinal feature of my NDE, which is an unusual feature, but it was there, what can I say, was amnesia, complete amnesia for my life. I had no knowledge of Evan Alexander's life, any knowledge of earth, earthlings or of earth or of this universe. All that was gone. Uh, and so when I came back to this world, all I knew was where I'd just been. But I didn't even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons, standing at the bedside, my former spouse. I had no idea who they were. Uh, and all of that came back, though, extremely quickly. Within hours, I had language coming back. 
uh, personal memories over a few, uh, you know, a week or two. Um, and then, in fact, all of my neuroscientific knowledge, religious beliefs, every bit of my prior knowledge, in fact, more completely than it had been before my coma, returned by two months post-coma. That wow. part's a real, real shocker. We talk about that, you know, in our, in our, uh, in our third book, which is uh, Living in a Mindful Universe. Karen and I talk a lot about uh, all of this, and especially the evidence that consciousness is not produced by the brain, that memories are not even stored in the brain. I mean, it's all just an extraordinary kind of revelation going beyond the falsehoods of our materialist science. Uh, and yet, I, when I came back to this world, and especially as Colin Proof of Heaven, four months post-coma, as I started to realize the reality of my journey, uh, that's when I was really pressed uh, as a scientist to come up with a, a much deeper kind of understanding and explanation of it all. And the good news is that's all there. That's what we cover in Living in a Mindful Universe because the science behind this is very supportive. Uh, in fact, modern science is completely consistent with spirituality and our notions of our existence as spiritual beings. And in fact, modern science completely crushes that notion of pure materialism and that you can close the loop of causality in one physical universe, you cannot. That's why quantum physicists uh, often default to the many worlds interpretation of infinite parallel universes to explain the findings of quantum physics. But if you realize the primacy of consciousness, you don't have to do any of that. Uh, primacy of consciousness answers all of those questions that they try and solve with infinite parallel universes, but simply by putting mind as primary. And that is the, the focus of our book, Living in Mindful Universe, is that radical shift in the modern scientific understanding of relationship between brain and mind. Right. I know that you um, talk about some resources, all of the, the at the um, School of, I think, Study of Perception at University of Virginia and Galileo. If listeners are interested in reading all the scientific research that's going on right now in this area, which is just so amazing and so important. It, it is. And what I can do is I can just short circuit right to the answer. And the answer is that the afterlife and reincarnation are absolutely supported by the reality of this emerging scientific worldview. It's very refreshing. It goes far beyond the simplistic and bleak um, falsehoods of materialistic right. uh, uh, Newtonian determinism. Uh, you know, quantum physics and neuroscience and philosophy of mind, parapsychology, all the evidence for non-local consciousness. Uh, it opens the door wide. And so any of your listeners who want to learn more, uh, I mean, one place, of course, is our book, Living in the Mindful Universe, my website, evanalexander.com. Uh, but certainly there are big organizations in which I uh, participate, for example, galileocommission.org. Yes. I'm one of the hundred plus uh, scientists around the world. Uh, who supports the work of that organization. If you read the manifesto posted at that website, galileocommission.org, you'll learn a tremendous amount about this, and plus see all the scientists who support this work. Likewise, I would steer people to the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, as mm -hmm. you're pointing out, uh, and, and their website is extremely informative, uvadops.org. Uh, and there you'll find a lot of the original papers that they put out scientifically, a lot of the books they publish. Uh, and it's not just about near-death experiences. I mean, uh, uh, the group at University of Virginia for the last six decades has gotten into every aspect of this. The brain does not create consciousness. 
Memories are not stored in the brain. We are much more than just our physical body or much more than just our thoughts, much more than our little ego idea of who we are. And it's yes. growing into that much grander reality that I think is such a beautiful gift for all of us. Right. And from our listeners, um, Eben's life partner, Karen Newell, and um, I interviewed her, gosh, I think it was just last week. And we're going to put your interviews back to back because we really dive in, which we're going to talk a little bit about today is sacred acoustics. So to segue with sacred acoustics um, and sound and those beautiful notes, musical notes you heard when you were on your journey, tell us what, tell us what happened. Describe Describe your journey, the the after. What do you call it? Do do you call it the afterlife? Well, or? Uh, I just call it a spiritual realms and just yes. kind of the uh, grander aspects of who we are that go far beyond just the materialist notion. Well, my journey started, and this, of course, is all told in proof of heaven and in some of my yes. talks. But just the short version. Um, it all started in a primitive, course, unresponsive realm that I call the earthworm's eye view. And that's where I would point out to people, I had no words or language, no memories of this universe, no knowledge of Evan Alexander's life. It was an empty slate at Tabula Rasa. Uh, and in some of my subsequent writings, I've talked about why that was so important, but it, it was an unusual feature. And it took me a while to figure out why I have such an atypical feature in my NDE. But they're always tailored for the individual, even though yes. they, uh, all NDEs and shared death experiences have many commonalities. and and how they're described. And also they're a beautiful example of how this is not just what your religious side and your religious beliefs would lead you to. Because very often the near-death experience conflicts dramatically with, with someone's prior religious beliefs. And it mm -hmm. certainly did in my case. Uh, your religion might flavor the way you talk about it, but the content of the experience is belongs to those realms alone and is not just kind of your belief and your imagination whipping it up in the setting of a near-death experience. Um, but in that earthworm eye view of very primitive course, um, like I said, unresponsive. People often ask, was that hell or purgatory? Well, I think hell would be at least a little bit interactive in that realm. Even though I had no language, I could still kind of wonder who, what, where, how. And there was never any flicker of response to any of that curiosity. Good news is it didn't last forever. I was rescued by this slowly spinning white light that came to me and opened up like a portal. Uh, in the in the fabric of that earth where my view and led up into this brilliant ultra real gateway valley far more real than any kind of experience I'd ever had in this world and in that gateway valley it was very filled with kind of earth-like features I mean I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing I never at any point had any kind of body image at all during the entire experience I was just like a piece of awareness picking up experience and recording it in memory. That's exactly what that was like for me. Um, and in that gateway valley, um, as I said, many earth-like features, there were sparkling waterfalls into crystal blue pools, tremendous and lush, fertile of uh, plant life everywhere, and no sign of any death or decay. I mean, this was in many ways like a world of ideals, like Plato's world of ideals, where everything was kind of perfect, but it was done as a demonstration uh, of our existence and of our soul's uh, kind of higher prospects. And I remember all these beings down below dancing, lots of joy and merriment. It was all being fueled because up above were these swooping angelic 
of uh, choirs, basically, these orbs of light leaving uh, golden dusty trails against the sparkling, uh, 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 sparkling trails against a blue-black velvety sky. I mean, it was just uh, indescribable, really. And yet those anthems and chants and hymns, such a pure form of music, were thundering through my awareness. And they were fueling all of the joy and merriment I saw going on down below. Um, and the best part, of course, is that I wasn't alone on that butterfly wing. There was a beautiful young woman, and I'll never forget her sparkling blue eyes and, and soft brown hair and her high cheekbones and broad smile. She never said a word. She never had to. She looked at me with this look of pure love. And what came into my awareness was a deep and profound sharing of her emotional and cognitive truth about all of this existence. And her message to me, I think, was the most important aspect of the message that I was to bring back to this world and share. Uh, and that was, uh, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. And I cannot tell you how, what a refreshing uh, uh, kind of life-affirming and, and joy-affirming bliss to see state uh, that engendered in me, uh, just uh, absolutely magical. And I remember it was around the same time that this beautiful breeze blew through that I called in my writing many weeks later when I was recovering from this, the breath of God or divine wind. And that breath was my first knowing in this kind of uh, amnesic state of not having any prejudice or, or prior beliefs or knowledge. It was my first knowing of the power and of the complete uh, being home and spiritual nature of that infinitely loving God force that fueled everything in that realm and these lower realms and then in higher realms, as I was soon to find. Um, now, I often also point out that part of the message from that guardian angel, that beautiful woman on the butterfly wing, was you can do no wrong. And I have to explain that in proof of heaven, I didn't do a very good job of sharing that by that point, I knew the reality of love. Uh, at the at the uh, core of all this, that it was the ultimate binding force that that binds everything in the universe together. Uh, that beautiful sense of love uh, and connection. So, in that statement from her, you can do no wrong. What I knew is that means that we are here to learn these lessons of love and as much as possible make the choices in our life, uh, in the material realm and in the lower spiritual realm, which is where we would have life reviews and. Uh, meet uh, our higher soul and, and souls of departed loved ones, all that kind of thing. Uh, but that it's always to make the, learn to make those choices out of unconditional love, mercy, compassion, kindness, and acceptance, and when necessary, forgiveness. But that those are the guiding principles. And anytime we veer away from those, we're having to learn the harder way, the lessons of the binding force of love. So it's best to get it right the first time and, and to bring that kind of knowing into our actions in this world. That's why I often say that the most important lesson to come out of the near-death experience community is not what happens when you die, but how we're supposed to live these lives and take right. care of ourselves and each other of uh, showing love. And there really is no enemy in that. There is no bad actor. There is the absence of light and love. And what we can do is serve as conduits of that light and love. This is something I often do in meditation, to bring that love into this world, but then I find that the only way to really apply it is to use it in my decisions and in my actions of dealing with all other fellow human beings. It's not just some pie in the sky ideal system, but it's bringing the ideal to life in this world. 
That's why this knowledge is so important. Now, in my journey, in my coma journey, that butterfly wing and that beautiful young woman were only a stepping stone because, in fact, those angelic choirs, just like the uh, portal up from the earth where my view into that beautiful ultra-real gateway valley had been a musical portal. And what I learned is by remembering the musical notes of that melody, I could resurrect that portal at any time. And so an important lesson of this is music, sound vibration. And of course, I'm sure your listeners are astute enough to realize these are not sounds heard with any ears in a physical right. four-dimensional space-time. And these are not eyes that are you know, confined to uh, the limitations of vision in, in this material realm. But our knowing in those realms is far less limited than it is in this realm. It's knowledge through identification, where we become huge swathes of the universe as part of the lessons to be learned. Now, in my ongoing lesson, going from that gateway valley uh, through that next portal generated by the angelic choirs above, I ascended through higher and higher levels. I remember all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, physical reality, and then all the layer of spiritual reality, where there's life reviews and reuniting with higher souls and loved ones, uh, planning next incarnations, all that would happen in that, that kind of middle layer. But I ascended way up and out of that. So all of that collapsing, including what I call deep time, because time flow in that realm is much more kind of connected to the evolution of consciousness and the growth of individual souls through learning and teaching. Uh, time flow in this realm is very much part of the stage setting for the drama to unfold here. Uh, but the reason I mentioned that about deep time is it's what allows for reincarnation to occur honoring the highest form of connection, which is our relationships. People yes. often worry, oh, what if my loved one reincarnates before I die and get to see them in dying? No, by definition, that can never happen. And that has to do with a deeper understanding of deep time and this, this much more a kind of broadly applied uh, time flow and causality flow to the events of the universe that's much more measurable from those spiritual realms. Now, for me, this whole ascent into higher and higher levels led me to what I call the core. And that's where all of the higher dimensional space-time and the spiritual realms had collapsed down into this very uh, complex oversphere. And I had witnessed the collapse of all dimensions, even of all of time. So what I was seeing was the multiverse throughout all of eternity. And that was tiny compared to the core realm in which I then existed is this oneness with this divine, infinitely uh, healing force. Uh, healing is, comes from the same as the uh, word root of to become more whole. Uh, and so this is all a process of healing. And we're all in the process of becoming more whole through this. And that's where that core realm was such an important thing. Now, it's not anything that I can even remotely explain in human terms to do it justice. Uh, but the reality is it was kind of like being on the edge of a black hole with one foot and one, uh, you know, inside the event horizon, the other outside. So in that oneness of entire unification and God force throughout all of eternity and infinity, uh, you then hit the very first layers of where all that starts to uh, split out into all these various spiritual levels and then finally down into the material realm. Uh, and that would be that core realm. And I remember that it was, it seemed to be absolutely overflowing with the force of healing, of oneness, of that God force of pure love. Uh, in many ways, I would say all of our religious systems over time 
have come from people who have glimpsed into the spiritual realm, seen yes. this kind of majesty. That's why NDEs and, and, and in many ways our religious system all have such profound similarities at their core. The important thing to remember about our religious system, for example, is, is one thing I noticed uh, uh, in coming out of it all is, is how profoundly the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, has a form of expression in every single religion on earth. Uh, and even in some of the non-religious systems as kind of a moral compass, treat others as you would like to be treated. Well, in essence, that is written into the very fabric of the universe when you when you realize that this life review occurs in a very commonly accessible level, uh, and the life review going all the way back to the time of Plato and his his writings 2,400 years ago about the death of Armenian soldier Ur, where that soldier told you know his fellow soldiers 2,400 years ago that the only thing that matters when you die, uh, for one thing, he said you go through a review of your life, but you find that the only thing that matters in that review of your life is how much love you have managed to express to others in this world. That 2,400 years ago from a dead Armenian soldier who came back to life after lying dead on the battlefield for 10 days. Now, uh, that's astonishing, but it brings up all the commonalities. Uh, I know Raymond Moody was very impressed with the story of Ur. Uh, he yes. had read that as a, uh, you know, when he was getting a PhD in Greek philosophy. Uh, at University of Virginia. And yet, so that's what makes the rest of his story so magical when he went on uh, as a medical student at Medical College of Georgia to realize that his students uh, or his patients uh, who had come close to death were telling him stories like he knew from Plato's right. rendition of Ur. Uh, and so Raymond just thought, well, that's just like these stories of today. And he brought alive this whole world of people now interested in near-death experiences. He wrote a book, Life After Life, in 1975, in which he told the story of more than 100 patients he had investigated with these amazing stories of what happens when you die. And of course, back then, nobody had ever heard of near-death experiences. They were completely out of nowhere. Um, but uh, the reason is they came from somewhere. They came from the same place where our, our religions have grown up. But our religions, the, the, the superficial dogma is misleading. That was all from humans trying to control other humans, whereas the original spiritual, the rich message of the prophet or the mystic that gave us the original teachings all converges, especially in the meditative traditions of all the great faiths, to very simple principles of mercy, compassion, connection, and oneness, uh, and that we're all in this together through this incredibly powerful force at the at the at the core of the universe and even if you don't have uh you know a creation story like say buddhism which would look at this consciousness and compassion uh, but it's it's an element of the universe at its very core that is undeniable that in so many ways is the very uh, source of our conscious awareness and that's where i think from my point of view all of this is shifting dramatically and in our book living in a mindful universe, we make a very strong case for really kind of shifting your notions of God and shifting your notions of consciousness very slightly, but in such beautifully powerful ways that they interconnect uh, and show you the oneness that we experience is through that uh, source of our very conscious awareness being that God force. Uh, right. And that we all, near-death experiences are nothing other than telling us that we identify with that God force. I mean, it's so common for people in these stories 
to talk about bathing in that ocean of love and coming back knowing there's nothing to fear about death. And that's because we're not separate from God, but that God force is right there as part of our conscious awareness. And we can discover that by going within. Meditation, centering prayer. And that's why I do all this work with a sacred acoustic, with sound. Um, and specifically, there, there's one form of sacred acoustics uh, that, that most people are familiar with, and that is neural helix. That's the, uh, a lot of the sounds that uh, Karen and, and her business partner, Kevin Cossey, uh, have gifted this world with. Uh, these, uh, may, I've used sacred acoustic sounds daily, an hour, two, three hours daily when I can for the last uh, nine years. I mean, to me, these have been absolutely essential for returning to my NDE, for uh, getting to know the denizens of that beautiful realm, that infinitely healing God force. Uh, plus, I've developed much uh, richer relationships with uh, my uh, sister's soul, as I uh, mentioned, my birth sister. Uh, you know, that's the backstory and proof of heaven. Uh, and my father, and in Living in a Mindful Universe, I tell about how I finally reunited with my father's soul more than two years after yes. my NDE. And the shock, of course, that he was not present in my NDE, because if I had scripted it, he would have been there first and foremost. But right. when I encountered him in a deep meditation using binaural beat, sacred acoustic style sounds, um, you know, all, all of it opened up to me very richly because he, yeah. he uh, let me know so much more about my NDE and stuff that I didn't discover in the NDE, but was very pertinent to explaining it all. Uh, so for me, meditation, going within, these sounds are extremely crucial. Uh, and I often say that you don't have to have a near-death experience to understand all this about the eternity of soul um, and about the interconnectedness of our souls and that uh, it's our relationships with others that is the reason the whole universe exists. So we should try and do our best job with how we make choices in those relationships. Uh, but right. meditation is absolutely the key. and And... You can read all the books and watch the talks and the podcasts and all that till the cows come home. But until you have personal experience, uh, you're really not going to get this. And the personal experience is something that many, many people in our workshops have come to know uh, beautifully. And that's why I'm such a fan of sharing meditation and especially deep differential frequency brain uh, wave and trained uh, sound uh, in, uh, enhanced meditation because it is such a powerful tool at opening each and every one of us to person experience in these realms. Yes. Well, I know that um, when I interviewed Karen, something that just has stayed with me ever since is that what you found, and this is very scientifically based to these sacred acoustics, because I, um, I know that these, of course, music, sound, chanting have gone back, I think you said 300 million years, how people have used sound in different ways. And so we were just, we were talking about that and we, she went on to explain that just being full of love and feeling without even, even if someone's across the room or in another, you're, that goes out to them. I mean, it's like right. you're a light and that actually you can feel, you know, 
feel that you bring love to the situation, to the world, to the, by just embracing it inside you yourself. And, and it's because consciousness is fundamental in the universe. And just yes. to clarify something about your interview with Karen, um, what we, what we often share with people, the important thing about these sounds, every sound you've ever heard, and this includes every chant, anthem, hymn, what have you, that has engendered a transcendental state of conscious awareness, that kind of thing. Every one of those sounds has been processed in the neocortex. It's been processed in circuits that arose in primates and human beings in the last one to 10 million years. Um, and uh, that's it. That's the name of the game. The right. sacred acoustics, that kind of differential frequency sound that we're talking about that is so powerful and far more powerful than what we mentioned 10 seconds ago uh, about you know, the chants and anthems and hymns. But what is so much more powerful about this, I believe, is that those differential frequency um, uh, have an effect in the lower brainstem. So in other words, they are uh, affecting a circuit that arose long before mammals arose on Earth, more than 300 million years ago. And there's a general principle in evolutionary biology, if you want to get at a deeper understanding of a function or an anatomic structure and its associated function, you go back in the evolutionary chain. Right. I love it when you say, um, I, first of all, I love it when you call, when you and Karen go out and do play shops, not workshops. I love that word, play shops. Well, they play are play shops. shops. <laughs> yes, yes. COVID pandemic, time to play. Yes, yes. And you also say that when we go into ourselves deeply, we can become the souls we were meant to be. I just love that. So I have a question for you. Not Dr. Alexander, not, you know, the scientists, not the sacred acoustics, not the just Eben Alexander. How has all of this changed the way you love and walk in your life? Well, it's, it's really had a tremendous change. I mean, for one thing, I see myself as connected with the universe, just like all of us are but in a very unique way. We're all uniquely connected with the primordial mind of the universe. We all have that God force as part of who we are. This is one of the reasons why it's so crucial. And one of the things we do in our meditative play shops that step one is to let people know you are not the thoughts in your head. You know, so many of us identify with the running stream of thoughts in our head. I love how Michael Singer calls that little voice of our ego, the linguistic brain in our head, the annoying roommate. Because yes. the first thing you have to do is not take yourself that seriously. That's not really who you are. The big magical mystery of consciousness is the awareness. And this is something Karen and I uh, start people off on very early in, in our meditation play shops is separating that little voice in the head, the little ego voice, you know, which can certainly help in stating a request and, or an intention early in a meditation, but then it goes into timeout. And don't let that little voice sit there in your head and go, what are you doing wrong? You're not doing this right. You know, there's something wrong. How come you're not having a result? Put it into timeout. Get right. rid of it. The magic is in the uh, awareness that I know that I exist and exploring that is what takes you in some incredibly powerful and interesting territory because it ends up we're all sharing one mind uh, right, in very right. profound ways. As you realize yeah. that telepathy is absolutely real, uh, you know, psychokinesis, precognition, these are all clues that uh, in many ways we are sharing the one mind. And 
I like to say it's like we're facets on a diamond. So each one of us is a slightly yes. different perspective, but the one mind is there for all of us. And if we hurt another, we're hurting ourselves. That's that deep lesson of how the golden rule, treat others as you'd like to be treated, is written into the fabric of the universe. The universe. And in these meditation yes. and play shops, what people end up doing is finding out that their consciousness is much more uh, beautifully viewed as a heart consciousness and that it resonates with others, uh, other souls, and with their heart consciousness. And I, I love how Karen uh, taught me the power of that notion of heart consciousness and of the resonance of information and the overflow mm -hmm. and how powerful that loving effect can be at connecting us with others and connecting us with the universe. Um, right. I've come to see the hardships in life, trials and tribulations, illness, injury, all of that are potential gifts. They're stepping stones. In many ways, uh, they're kind of what our higher soul, I believe that our higher soul and soul groups kind of selected potential pathways to follow to help us grow into the soul we came here to be. Uh, yes. But all that is a process of evolution. I have um, one more very important question. Our younger generation, our children of this world, what can we do to help them recognize? I know you have some beautiful um, sacred acoustics that, that you've done some work with children, but, but what do you feel like we could do to help children understand this um, so they live more in love and not fear? You know, the whole topic of our last hour of discussion is where the world is headed. And this is a much more responsible form of human behavior where we acknowledge up front that we're all in this together, that we're here to take care of each other. And it's no longer acceptable that, you know, this profit motive, whoever has the most toys when they die wins. Wrong, they lose. If you haven't, you know, if you've gained any kind of material success in this world, the best thing you can do is use that to help share with yes. people to help enhance everyone's life. We're all in this together and yeah. it's really about taking care of each other. Uh, this is a deep and profound lesson from NDEs and the more NDEs are supported by other consciousness studies, they're taking us into this whole new level. This is where the, the next generation and our youth will take up the baton and run with the ball and end up uh, leading to a world that is far more harmonious, successful, um, and, um, uh, basically, it'll be a far better world. Yeah, uh, we'll get along. Warfare will be a thing of the distant past. Uh, our economic system will no longer be one where you know 400 families hold, in the U.S. hold more wealth than the bottom 60% of the economy. That's a, a criminal tragedy. That should never have happened. That's from a capitalist system that's gone berserk. And yet I think there's plenty of hope that the, the, the youth of today uh, will be able to learn from our mistakes, and especially with the kind of lead we're trying to provide uh, with this kind of awakening. Uh, and I think that they will uh, lead us all to a far better life. And when you realize all that scientific evidence for reincarnation, what you actually realize is there's some aspect of me that's going to be coming back, uh, you know, we'll face the brunt of whatever cards we deal for future generations. Right. We, we, we really don't want to hurt anybody else, and that includes 
future generations because yes we will be hurting ourselves yes absolutely well evan thank you so much um for today i'm just honored to interview you and um great words of wisdom and we'll have all of your books and show notes and everything that you talked about um i mean we'll have all that <laughs> the books all the information in the show notes so thank you. Well, that's, and that's great. Well, thanks so much. We appreciate that and look forward to talking to you again sometime. Yes, me too. Thanks a lot. All right, Marla. Have a great thanks day. a lot. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.